0: If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of James. We're kicking off a new series tonight on maturity, Um, and I'm excited for this. Uh, Our uh, teaching team has kind of, you know, we had a really, really great conversation about this book and why we wanted to dig into this book in the springtime, and um, I believe God's got some really, really sweet stuff to say to us through the book of James. If you don't know where the book of James is, it's in the New Testament. It's after the book of Hebrews, so you got like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you got a bunch of names that are like... You know, some of them are hard, hard to pronounce, like Ephesians, Philippians, you keep going. you see Timothy, Thessalonians, you keep going, you'll see Hebrews, it's right after Hebrews and right before I believe first John or no, first Peter. So if, you, if you're having trouble finding it, use your table of contents in the front of the Bible. There's no shame in that. and uh, I'm going to pray real quick and then w- while you guys are getting there, and then we are going to jump into the book of James tonight, talk about maturity. Father in heaven we need you. Um, and we need you in ways that even we don't understand right now. God, there's only limited things in our own hearts that we can see. And so I pray that tonight you would you would expose maybe some of the dark areas of our hearts, some areas of our hearts where we're, we're hiding from you. God, that we would um, put those areas into the light, that we would receive and feel the warmth of the mercy of the gospel, we would receive and feel the warmth of our Savior Jesus, and we would receive and feel the warmth of what it means to be forgiven at the foot of the cross. God, I thank you so much for the book of James. I thank you for how it challenges us and provokes us um, to radical obedience. And so I pray tonight as we open this up that you would help us live in the tension of, of being saved and yet being called to more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. We all, I think, maybe maybe some of you disagree in here, but but I think I think many of us like have a longing to grow. Like I remember when I was in middle school and high school, and I like really really wanted like an awesome, glorious beard. Like I just thought that was the coolest thing ever to have an amazing, glorious like mane of facial goodness, just transcending off of my cheekbones down onto my chest, and and just, and, I, and, and I'm 25, and I still can't grow a beard, and so I just don't want to shave, so I like have this, because I just don't want to mess with it, because it's annoying, and I, and I, every time I see Ben Martin and his face of glory, I'm just jealous, or Mr. Handtack and his, and his luscious locks of amazingness coming out of his chin and his cheeks, like glory. Anyway, but we, 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 we do, right? Like, I, I think genuinely, like, we all have a longing to grow. And, and I think we, we, we want to grow physically, right? We, mentally, like, the moment, I remember, like, the moment that I got into sixth grade, I couldn't wait to be a freshman in high school. The moment I got to be a freshman in high school, I couldn't wait to be a freshman in college or to have a job. The moment that I, like, got out on my own, I couldn't wait to start a family. Like, we, we, we always long for, like, the, the stage that's next in life. And one of the things that like it's cool it's it's great but I think one of the things that you know we miss out and this is kind of a rabbit trail a little bit but you know if we if we're always looking to the next stage in life we don't get to enjoy the one that we have right now. You know if we're if we're in middle school and we're looking toward high school we don't get to enjoy middle school now because we're so worried about what's coming next. Or if we're in high school and we're, we're so worried and consumed about college that we're not actually there and, and able to enjoy the moment. And so Um, we we all have a longing to grow physically, we all have a longing to grow mentally, I know many of you like don't like to be at school, but you probably like the fact that you can read, like that's valuable, Um, that's a gift, you probably enjoy the fact that you can read, it's, you know, if if you want to drive, or if you want to do like anything functional in our culture, you got to be able to read, Um, so that's helpful, or to do basic math, or whatever, and so we all want to grow physically, we all want to grow mentally, and I think, I think, and I think this is why you're here tonight, I think, I think a lot of you want to grow spiritually. I think there's a longing in your heart to become more and more acquainted with the God who saves and to become more and more acquainted with Jesus. And I genuinely think that. But when you hear the word maturity, like we all have thoughts about that word, right? For some of us, maturity means like growing up. For some of us, maturity might mean like, oh, that guy who's driving a car, mature, because he can drive or she can drive. Or like for, for those of you who are like, you know, you, you, you're, you're thinking about that next stage in life. So if you're hi, in high school, like the, the college age, they're mature. And then you look at like the middle school age and you're like, they're immature. If you're in middle school, you're like the high school age, they're mature. And then you look at the elementary school age, you're like, they're immature. And, and it's like we all have this picture of what maturity and immaturity is. But the Bible paints a very interesting picture of maturity that has absolutely nothing to do with age, physical stature, mental capacity, like any of that. The Bible paints a very interesting picture of maturity in the sense that it uses words like perfect and complete in the English language to give you a framework or a picture for what maturity is. You see, maturity in the Bible would be kind of equivalent to wholeness or completeness. Right? So if you think of a human person as like a project in the hands of God, maturing is the process of getting that person to their finished place right? Think of an artist, right? Um, as they're sculpting a masterpiece, they start out with this like raw material of this giant stone, and then over time they chisel away at it until it becomes this finished work, this masterpiece of just beauty. And it's amazing to see. And mat- maturing is the process of essentially God chiseling us into the image of Jesus that was lost by the fall. And so when we become saved, right, when we, when we see, when we have eyes of faith, when we believe that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and that we now have access to God the Father because of Jesus, when we believe that on the cross that Jesus bore the weight of all of our sin and all of the, the rebellion that separates us from God, and He was punished so that we could experience the freedom of, of, of unmarred or untainted fellowship with, with God, we, we get saved. But then after we get saved, something happens. You see, we're declared, what the Bible calls holy, at salvation. We're declared to be God's own possession when we're saved. But then there's this process that happens, and it's, it's called sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. So, so sanctification is this process that starts the moment you're saved where God begins to chisel away at the sin in your life and sculpt you into the masterpiece that he created you to be. He sculpting you into... Um, the image of Jesus. He's He's making you like His son. He's chiseling away at the at the sin and the weakness and the failure in your life to expose who He desires you to be, and that 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 can sometimes be painful, right? Like if I took an ice pick up to you and started like ding 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 on your side, you're gonna be like, dude, stop, that hurts, right? Um, it's not gonna feel good having a hammer and a chisel like driving at your ribcage. It's not pleasant for anyone. And so sometimes the, when as God is chiseling away at us. It is painful and it is difficult. And we're going to see that a little bit in the book of James, but maturity is this picture of completeness and wholeness. And growth, right? If we think about growth, especially as it relates to like Christian growth in the faith, it's hard, right? Think about read scripture, 2019. This, you know, there's reading plan we're wanting to do. 20 minutes in the Bible a day is hard. There are some chapters in the Bible that are like really, really, really hard to read. They're really hard to read, but they're valuable. And it's and as we get through those that we begin to grow more and more like Jesus, because reading scripture is hard. Praying regularly is hard. Growing is hard. Being here on a consistent basis where we can hear the word of God opened up and, and proclaimed and we can be challenged in our own personal life and we can be um, encouraged and pushed to grow closer and closer to Jesus, right? Getting here on a consistent basis and doing that is hard. And so we, we can kind of take two postures. We can, we can either press toward growth and maturity and wholeness and completeness or we can resist it. And I think you know what both of those look like. I think, I think each of us, if we're in here, we've, we've pushed toward growth and maturity maybe. Maybe we haven't. But we've all, there's one thing in here that we all have in common. It's that we've all resisted. We've all resisted God's work of maturing us and you see, resistance to God and His ways is actually evidence of our immaturity. When we resist God, when we resist who He is, when we resist what the Spirit is doing in our lives, when we ignore Him, when we suppress Him, when we put Him down, when we try to silence Him, it shows our immaturity. And maturity actually begins when we give ourselves entirely to God. You see, that's the beginning of maturity, is when we, when we give ourselves to God and His ways. So we're in the book of James. Now, James is a very interesting book, and one of the reasons why is because it's, it's, it's actually named James, um, and James is actually an English name. So if you look up the original language, the guy's name is actually uh, Jacobus, which is like the English translation of that is Jacob. But church tradition has called this book James for so long that we just still call it James, but his name is actually Jacob. So fun fact for the day. James is actually Jacob. James is just an English name. So I thought that was pretty funny when I was studying. I was like, what? And we still call it James, but his name is Jacob. What? What is going on here? Anyway, so um, so the book of James. James, the guy who wrote this, is, is he's actually uh, many people who are far more intelligent than I am. There's, there's disagreement here, but a lot of people land with and believe that James, this is actually um, the physical brother of Jesus. Jesus had many siblings when he was born. Um, technically, James is a half-brother, right? Because uh, Mary is his mom, and Joseph was actually not his dad because Mary was a virgin when they when they when they conceived jesus and so James is jesus 's half brother and James is also the pastor um, and the main influential leader over the church in Jerusalem, kind of where Christianity started, and Christianity started in Jerusalem, and it spread out to the ends of the earth. And, and so James is actually the pastor. He's one of the lead elders in the church of Jerusalem. He's a prominent figure. He contributed much to uh, uh, Christianity in the first century and the spread of the gospel in the first century. And so James is a pretty important dude. Like this is the guy who grew up around Jesus. Like he saw Jesus, Jesus was the oldest, but he, you know, he saw Jesus as he was growing, as Jesus learned stuff. He, he, he was there and, and was a part of that. Um, and this letter was written to, if you look at uh, verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Um, James actually wrote this letter. This is a very vague audience. He didn't write it to, like, a specific city. He, he wrote it to struggling Christians just all over the place, specifically struggling Jewish Christians. And um, the book of James is, is all about This is is really what James is really driving at when he writes this letter. He, He is challenging people and encouraging people to remain ruthlessly biblical, ruthlessly close to what the Bible commands and calls us to in our everyday way of life. He commands us to be ruthlessly biblical when difficulty is relentless. When life is hard, James is pushing us to be ruthlessly biblical, to hold tight to the gospel firmly with everything we have and live out every single aspect of that gospel in every single aspect of our lives. And so we're gonna, we're gonna open this up. We're gonna start in verse uh, two here and I'm just gonna read a couple verses. Now just, so James starts this letter with this. This is a really abrupt and like strong way to start a letter. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So count it joy when, you, when things are hard. That's very strange advice. You know, typically when things are hard, like things are hard. I don't, I'm not joyful in those moments. But he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations might say endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's exactly where we got the name of this series from, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James wants people to endure trial, to take joy in trial, to rejoice in trial, to cling to Christ in trial, because when you do that, it gives you this endurance. It gives you this ability that, like, I don't know about you, but like when life gets hard, I'm prone to run away from God, not toward God. And yet James, what he's telling us here is if we, if we count it all joy when we, we meet trials of various kinds, we know that these trials, these difficulties, these things that are happening to us, they're giving us endurance. They're giving us steadfastness. They're giving us the ability to hold on to Jesus when life is like really hard, right? When I feel like all my friends are against me, when I feel like, you know, nothing is going my way in this life, when, when this person is making fun of me for being a Christian, or. When life is hard, when when we have trials of various kinds, when we have suffering of various kinds, specifically what James is talking about is persecution here. So when these people are suffering for the sake of Jesus, they're to meet that with joy. And when they meet that with joy, something happens in their soul. They grow stronger. And not only do they grow stronger, but they begin to mature, to get perfected. You see, what, what perfect means in, in, in this passage is not perfect in the sense of how you and I typically think of perfect, like, like perfect in the sense of like having no flaw, no error, right? Like, oh, he's perfect or she's perfect. Like that, no, that's not what James is talking about. What James is talking about by perfect is finished, that we would be finished and complete, whole and complete, mature and complete. And so like, why do we press on through difficulty? Why, we, why do we look at difficulty in the face and, and meet it with joy? This is what James is driving at. James is, is encouraging you and he's encouraging me through this letter that when things are hard, that we do not focus on the thing that's making life hard, right? Typically what we do, you and I, when, think, when we're struggling, what do we do? We think about the struggle, right? We look at the struggle, we think about the struggle, we think our life is falling apart, and we freak out. And James is saying, no, Look through the struggle to see what God is doing behind the veil of of the physical world. Right? You and I, we can't see everything that God is doing in our hearts. We can't see what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. But James promises that when things are hard, that God is doing something. And that thing that God is doing is for your good. It's for my good. Because what it's doing is it's perfecting us. It's, It's completing us. It's maturing us. And so we can meet that struggling with joy. The test will be difficult, right? The struggle will be difficult. The trial will be difficult. The trial will also be worth it. Why? Because God is doing something. And so we know that the difficulty, even though, God, even though God has presented us with this really difficult situation, even though we're in lots of pain, even though life is hard, we can look through the pain. We can look through the struggle to see what God is doing. And when we see what God is doing, we can count it joy. Because we know that God is giving us endurance. He's giving us steadfastness. He's making us stronger. He's maturing us. And so the trial is actually worth it if it means our growth. How bad do you want to grow? If you actually want to grow, if that's like the goal of your life is to grow closer to Jesus, then difficulty will be worth it because difficulty will mean your growth. It'll help you get to the goal. Sometimes a whole lot faster than when life is easy. But also, we know that the test and the difficulty, it won't last forever, right? There's no difficulty in this life. There's no form of suffering in this life that is going to last forever. Because we know, as Christ followers, that this life is not all there is. Even if I suffer my entire life as a Christian, I can have great hope because my end is not in that suffering. My end is in eternity with Jesus. Right? We talked about that as we talk, closed out the series of First Thessalonians last semester that because the end is with Jesus, we can have great hope in this life no matter what's going on. We can cling to him and we can have incredible hope. It's kind of like if you're, if, you're, if you're taking finals. Right? We love finals, don't we? You know, here's the thing, I'm I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that I I can tell you right now what you love the most about taking your finals, no, uh, shh, shh, the thing that everybody loves in here about taking finals is when they are done, right, great, ew, 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 that's disgusting, it's a horrible show, you, you need to hang out with Sarah, Sarah likes that show. Oh, there you go. I'll oh, see. So you came and babysat, and our household converted you to Grey's Anatomy, really? No. Okay, good. Anyway, so the best part about taking finals or taking a test or something like that, going through something really hard, is the end. And it's with our eyes toward the end that we press on in the present, right? So we get through the test knowing that when we're done with the test, we, we can put it down, we can put the pencils down, give the Scantron. It's done. It's done. The best part about taking the test is, is the goal. When we get to the goal. It's the same thing in life. If we have our eyes fixed on the goal, which is being with Jesus, we will run harder. And that's what, or what, what James is saying here. He's saying that we can count it joy in suffering because our eyes are not on our suffering. We're looking through our suffering to the goal. And we know that we have to run through this suffering to get to our Savior. And so we're going to do that. And it's going to be joyful because my suffering means my intimacy with Jesus. And so it's, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. James isn't, James isn't telling us that, hey, when everything's hard, like, it's okay. You should celebrate. It's going to be great and honky-dory and we should all like, smile and pretend like we're okay. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about real joy, not fake joy. We all know what fake joy is. Fake joy is like the fake smile you put on your face when you're really struggling. That's not what he's talking about here. There's room for grief and misery in James's joy. Because suffering is real and the pain is real and we experience it in real time. But James is what James is really driving at, he's in our suffering. There is incredible hope if we fix our eyes toward the goal intimacy with Jesus. And we and we and we see that and we know that as we run through that suffering, that goal will happen. It's guaranteed to happen, James tells us here. God's word tells us that that our goal of being closer to Jesus is accomplished through suffering, and so we can run through suffering with confidence, knowing that we will become closer to our Savior through the process. So maturity seeks God in difficulty, but maturity doesn't just seek God in difficulty. Maturity puts confidence in God. You see, right after this in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So God is generous. Like, if you lack wisdom right now and you want wisdom, like, God, I I want wisdom. I want to understand you. I want to understand the gospel. I want to understand these things. James says, ask God. Just ask God for that wisdom. He will give it to you generously. He will pour it out on you in abundance. But then he says, let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith. Don't don't let him ask with doubting, because the man who asks with doubting is, is... chaotic, tossed back and forth by the like the sea, he says. He says, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. You see, When we try to ask God for something and at the same time we're doubting that God is going to provide that which we're asking for, we're in an unstable condition. We're trying to do an action of faith but not doing it in faith. And so James is saying that person is double-minded. They have their heart in two places. Jesus talks about the same thing when he says you can't serve both God and money. You can't have multiple gods. You can't be double-minded. You can't serve and live two lives. You're going to have a love for the one over the other. And so we, as God's people, are not double-minded. We ask God and we ask Him in faith. No doubting. Because the person who doubts is like a wave, tossed back and forth, unstable, chaotic, unpredictable. Unpredictable. Maturity puts confidence in God. It doesn't have misplaced confidence. You see, um, I remember when I was in middle school and high school, I had this kind of obsession with my appearance. Like before I left the house, I had to I had to look perfect. I had to I had to dress well, or at least however well I wanted to dress. I had to have the right T-shirt on; it needed to fit right. Like the jeans that I had on needed to fit right. The shoes I had on needed to fit right. The hat that I had on, because I always wore a hat back then too. Worn a hat since like the sixth grade, um, just just it all had to be perfect. It all had to line up, and I had this obsession with the way that I appeared, and that was misplaced confidence because my actions were showing where my confidence was. My confidence was not in anything else but people's opinions about me. I wanted people to think well of me. I wanted people to think that I was, you know, I looked good or that. Um, that I could be trusted or, or or that I was reliable or whatever. And so and so I, I wanted to look great for people. And so I was obsessed with that. And I had confidence in the way that people viewed me. It's misplaced confidence. James is calling us here not to have confidence in, in, in other things, but to have full confidence in God. And so when we want wisdom, we don't run to other things. We run to Him. If we want wisdom, we don't run to Google or a friend first we run to him we ask God God give us wisdom and God if you want me to get that wisdom from another person show me who they are so that I can get wisdom from a good place because you and I both know that that the wisdom of this world is very damaging but it's also very attractive it's also very attractive so we, we we run to God for wisdom but we also trust him with our lives James is speaking to a predominantly poor community. And in verses 9 through 11, he talks about that the lowly brother, the poor brother, should boast in his exaltation. Meaning that the person who's poor should not have their focus on their their circumstances, but their future glory. That they're going to be rich in the kingdom of God. But then the, 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 the wealthy brother, the wealthy Christian, is to boast in his humiliation. The fact that every person is leveled and brought low at the cross. And that, that rich person is no more superior than the poor person because they're both in a level of humility before Jesus. And so we're to trust Him. Him with our lives. We're not to run to our, our finances or to our, our securities in this world, like our homes or our friendships or things like that. That's not where we get our confidence. That's not where we get our wisdom. We give our confidence, our allegiance to God holy. That's maturity. Maturity isn't trusting in, in your, your future plans. Maturity is trusting in the God who knows the future and has future plans, both for you and for the rest of the world. And so what this means is, like, you and I, like, if we put full confidence in God, like, honestly, if you and I in every single avenue of our lives, like, we put full confidence in God, that's going to make life difficult for us, right? It's not, it's not going to make life easy. People aren't just going to be like, oh, hey, man, you're awesome. Like, no, you might get, like, picked on. Life might get hard. And th- that, again, goes back to what, what we talked about earlier, like, count it joy, When we face difficulty, when we face difficulty for looking different from the rest of the world, we can count it joy. Why? Because we can look through the difficulty to see what God is doing in growing us and shaping us and making us more like His Son, Jesus. But we forsake, we lay down, we we, we walk away from temporary comfort in this life because we know that we can have great comfort in the eternal gain that we will receive when Jesus comes back and cracks the sky and gathers all of his people to himself. And we can spend eternity with God here, ruling and reigning with Christ. And so we, we, we forsake and walk away from temporary comfort because we know we can take comfort in the glory of eternity. So maturity seeks God in difficulty. It it puts confidence in God. But then also James drives us to see that maturity comes from being reborn. Maturity isn't something that you and I like manufacture on our own. It's not something that we just like will our way to, right? Yes, we can practice. And yes, there are things that we can do in this life to, to grow in our own personal maturity. But here's the reality. We can only grow in our maturity as much as God allows us to, as much as God enables us to, as much as God causes us to. Look at, look at verses 14 through 18. They say, but each person, he's talking about being tempted here. He said, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own evil desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Basically what James is saying here, he says two things. First is we need to be reborn, right? Because our desires are misplaced. Think about this with me for a moment. Think about a time where you were led into sin. And to do something that you knew you were not supposed to do. Think about it. You got it? Everybody in the room should be thinking about something because we've all been led away into sin. So think about a time you were tempted to sin. Now here's the interesting thing. Do you know why it was so tempting? Because you actually wanted to do it. Your own desires, you wanted to do it. And it's in those moments where we see that sin, it doesn't start out here. It's not your friend's fault that they offered you this thing and then you sinned. It's not your friend's fault that they showed you this thing and then you, you sinned. It's not their fault over there because in our hearts, genuinely, we want it. We want it. We want to do things that we're not supposed to do. That's why James says in verse 14, Anyone who is being tempted is being tempted when they're lured away and enticed by their own desire. Think about this. Think about like a, like a fishing lure thrown out into the pond. And our desire does that. And we, and we see the, the bait. And we see it. And we want it. And we try to take it. And it's when we're lured away by our own desire that we're actually led into temptation. James says in verse 13 right before this, let no one say I'm being tempted by God. God cannot tempt or be tempted. So God is not tempting anyone. He can't do that. It is impossible for God to tempt anyone. But you are tempted when you're lured away by your own desire. So it's not God's fault when we're tempted. It's it's actually ours. It's it's our own heart. and So we, we need to be rescued from that heart. That's what James is driving at. And then he gives the solution in verses 16 through 18. He says, don't be deceived. Like, there's hope. There's hope. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from the Father. And so if you need a good and perfect gift to save you and rebirth you, give you a new heart, give you a new life, That's offered in Jesus of his own will. God wanted to do this. He he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth in the Bible over and over and over again is the same thing as the gospel or the good news, which is always pointing to the work that Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And that's what James is pointing us back to. He's saying the gospel is what saves you. And so when you're being tempted run to God run to him for rescue run to him because he has reborn you or he has caused you to be reborn and so maturity comes from being reborn that's the source the source of our growth and our maturity is not what we know it's not our age It's not how we look. It's not how tall you are. It's not if people think you're cool. It's not any of that. The source of your maturity is not if you have good manners or if you're not annoying. The source of your maturity is if you've been born again into a relationship with God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the source of our maturity. That is where our maturity comes from. And until that happens, you can have a beard, but you can still be a boy. Because it is God who matures us. It is God who matures us. That is the source of our maturity. That is the source of our growth. And so we, we... We see and we grow in maturity when we seek God in difficulty and, and we put our confidence in God in the midst of that difficulty. We run to Him for wisdom and we seek Him and we trust Him. We lay ourselves down before Him. We give ourselves entirely to God because we put confidence in God and it causes us to grow in maturity. And all of this maturity finds its source in being reborn. And finally, maturity remains close to the Word. It remains close to the Word. Verse 22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone that is a hearer of the word and not a doer, anyone who hears the word but doesn't do what it says, he is like a man who intently looks at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James is saying, like, men, if we if we see the Bible, if we read the Bible, if we hear the Bible, if we hear it, but don't do it, we're like a person who goes and like stares at themselves in the mirror and then walks away and forgets completely what they look like. We're forgetful. But he says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing meaning not only if you see the word and you you do what the Bible actually tells us to do, you'll be blessed in what you're doing. God will add value and multiply your efforts for the glory of his kingdom and for your good. God promises that not just if you hear the word but do it, that you will find favor in his eyes as you practice what he is calling you to in the scriptures. We have nothing but advantage when it comes to obeying the, the scriptures, but we need help. When we obey the scriptures, right? Because like this is hard stuff to do. That's why we need to be reborn. James is first calling us to rebirth in Christ, and, and for anyone who's born again, for anyone who's saved, he's he's calling you to obedience, radical obedience. Being ruthlessly biblical when difficulty is relentless. The closer we place ourselves to Jesus, the more we become like him. And, and the Bible is one of the tools that God has given us in this life to place ourselves before the feet of Christ to learn and grow and be shaped. We do this by hearing and we do this by obeying. James closes the first chapter of this book very in a very interesting way. And I read this over and over and over again. And, and to me, like really what this felt like was a punch in the face. Like it just did. It, it, because what it did was it exposed in me areas where my religion, my faith, in Jesus was lacking. And it says this in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, which basically means tame their tongue, hold their tongue, he, but deceives or I'm sorry, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, religion that is pure and clean before God, religion that is good and honorable before God, a faith in Christ that is, that is good before Jesus is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so to have a compassion for people in weak situations and to live in a way where the, the corruption of the world doesn't touch me. Not in the sense of me, I'm, 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 I'm just away from it, like living in a bubble. No, 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 I'm in it, but I'm not stained by it. Religion that is disconnected from love and compassion is worthless, and that's what James is really driving at here faith in Christ fills us with love and compassion for people. And as we're filled with love and compassion for people, we go and we tell people about Jesus. We communicate the gospel. And we go to people in weakness. We go to people in difficulty. We go to people in suffering. We speak well. But we don't do this to then earn favor with Jesus. Don't miss this. This all comes out of being reborn. We don't visit orphans and widows and live unstained from the world and then in doing so get saved. No, no, no. We get saved and then as a response from being saved, we go and do those things. And so your status before God is not earned through your doing. Your status before God helps your doing, causes your doing, moves you forward in your doing, in your works of love toward people. We're going to see that in the book of James. And so what I I, I want you to, to see tonight is simply this. This is all I want you to see from everything that I've said, is this. You and I are in a habit from disconnecting ourselves in our everyday way of life from the things that we claim to believe. Meaning, we claim to love Jesus, but our lives do not look that way. And so I just want you to think about this with me tonight as we leave. Where's the disconnect for you? Where's the disconnect for you? Where is your life disconnected from what you say you believe? Maybe the disconnect is you say you believe it, but you actually don't. Maybe the Holy Spirit's wanting to do something there. Maybe the disconnect is you're so worried about other people and what they would think of you. I don't know. But where's the disconnect? I'm excited to dig in this book with you guys. It's a good, it's a challenging book. This is, this is a hard book to read because some of the things, as you see, are very difficult. But they're good because they, they expose and show areas in our hearts where we need to grow. Why? So that we can grow in maturity. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who matures us. You help us. You cause growth in us. You've given us new life in Jesus, and so I pray that we would take that life, we would seize that new life, and we would use it for the kingdom. God, that we would use it to reach out to people in weak and difficult situations, that we would um, have mouths that speak in a way that gives grace to those who are around us. God, that we're careful in the way that we communicate to people, that we're wise And we ask you and seek you for wisdom, but most of all, God, that we would lay ourselves before the feet of Jesus in complete trust and reliance, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, you are working for our good, for our maturity, for our growth in the gospel. And so, God, help us to be a people who surrenders at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.